So today's reading is from Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55, and then we have another one. Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good deeds, good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The next reading is Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. So Heavenly Father, as we reflect on your holy word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears um, to receive a word that is not just written for a group of people 2,000 years ago, but written for us today as well. May your Holy Spirit illuminate to us your rhema word, your present word to us right now in this space. As we journey towards the celebration of the incarnation, Lord, may the meaning of this incredible act of love that you have come down to earth in the person of Jesus, may this transform our hearts this morning, we pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, so if you, uh, if you weren't here last week, our theme for Advent, which is the season that we are now in, the second Sunday, uh, even though it's the first Sunday in December, um, our theme is called Incarnate. Uh, one of the most important questions that we can ask is, who is God? Right, who is God? A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God, this is so important because it actually ends up shaping who we are. Uh, most people assume that the, the question, who is God, is kind of an unanswerable question. It's like, well, God's by default a mystery, right? I mean, we can know certain things, but we can't really, really know who God is. Um, that that would I think be a common assumption. I was speaking to someone this week um, about you know his sort of spiritual or philosophical beliefs behind Taekwondo classes, and he said, you know, look, I believe there's a creator, uh, but I don't mess with that. You know, 
It's, that's, that's out of my realm of knowing. I, I don't go there kind of thing. Um, God's a mystery and that's the way it should be sort of thing. Um, but the message of Christmas is that God has been made known to us in a person, in the person of Jesus. And it's not just about Jesus being a reflection of God. It, Jesus didn't come just to sort of show us what God is like as a representative of, of God, as an ambassador, someone who is like God but not truly God. God came down and made himself not fully known to us as a human being. Um, and so God was and is incarnate, is the theological word, in the person of Jesus. That means that God is all the things we assume sometimes that he's not. Incarnate means, if we just go back to that, um, that, that title slide, uh, in, incarnate means palpable and, and touchable and, and definite, detectable, evident, observable, perceivable, perceptible, visible, personified, substantiated, real, tangible. These are all the synonyms, according to Google, uh, of, of the word incarnate. God's not a complete mystery. He's been made known to us in a person. Both the, the way that God entered humanity, the, the means and the, the, the process that happened in the incarnation, and then the way Jesus lived in his earthly life, both of these things tell us, firstly, and this is what we talked about last week, that God is not a worried, stressed, rushed God, but a patient, unworried, unhurried, calm God of peace. This is who Jesus was. This is the means by which the incarnation happened. And, and so this reflects who God is. He's, he's a God of peace, of calm, of not of worry and hurry. Today, I want to explore another element, one of the possibly the most profound and deeply reassuring things that the incarnation means for us. Um, so let's think about, for a second, Mary's response to God's promise that she would bear God's son in her womb, right? We read from that today. It's called, often called Mary's Song, uh, the, our, our first reading this morning. Um, think about Mary's response of, of gratitude here. And now, Mary was not a rich woman. Uh, she probably quite a poor family. She was very young at this time. She, some say maybe even only 16 or 17 years old, uh, not yet married, pledged to be married, but not yet married. She wouldn't have had much in terms of physical, financial, you know, material resources, uh, Mary and her fellow Jews lived under the oppression of a tyrannical Roman government, uh, a a you know a forceful, oppressive uh, group of people, a powerful group of people. So her experience of life, Mary's experience of life, is nothing like that of you and I as privileged Westerners. Very different. And so God makes a choice here that to many religious elites of that time was unthinkable. He chooses someone like Mary to participate in his primary salvation plan. God, who deserves the greatest honour and status and privilege of everyone, went right past all the people with status and honour and privilege and identified with the person of, quote, humble estate. And so here is Mary's response again. Just listen to this again. He has been mindful 
of the humble state of his servant. He has brought rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. She's not talking about the person with the selfless attitude, but the the ones who they don't have stuff that would cause them to be proud, but they have been they're humbled. They're poor and lowly kind of people. This is who he's lifted up. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So this is Mary's response, and it's a cry of gratitude, right? It's it's a it's a wow, thank you, God, because God saw Mary's situation and did not overlook her. In fact, he came directly to someone like Mary. Straight past all the people with status and privilege and power to someone like Mary. And I, I believe this is just a glimpse. This was just a glimpse of what God was really planning to do through becoming a human being. So last month we read from, from uh, the book of, we did a series on Philippians. And in the second uh, session, Philippians 2, we read this, this Christ hymn, as it's usually called, where Paul says that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Part of what this is saying is that the incarnation is not something where God becomes a sort of human. Like, well, he was, he was, yeah, he was in a body, but... He's still, really, he's still God. He's just got a human-like experience. He's essentially a super man, a superhuman uh, who, who could really cheat on the true experience. No, that's, that's not what's going on. He humbled himself in every way. He humbled himself, came down to our level, became one of us. I think it's important when we look at something like this to do a little bit of theology um, to, to think about who we're really thinking about and what we're thinking about when we think about God. So is it all right if we do a bit of theology this morning? Some of you like, uh. We're always doing theology, by the way. This is just, um, yeah, anyway. When we talk about God, we talk about uh, a few things. And over time, of course, languages have changed. And once it was the various Latin words that were chosen, chosen now we, we have to look at what are the most appropriate English words, which do fail us. But this is the best we can kind of unpack the, the nature and who God really is. He is firstly one being. Just as you and I are one being. I'm a being. Amy's a being. Damon's a being. Michael's a being. God is one being, Right. However, whilst I am also a person, and Amy is a person, Damon is a person, God is three persons. So this doesn't often compute in our minds, but God is one being, three persons, three persons in one being. We call this the Trinity, right? Another term that is often used in theology when we're talking about God is his nature, and I've got to be very careful when I do this because this is the sort of thing where they take preachers out and stone them on the edge of the cliff afterwards because you're trying to unpack the Trinity and it's sort of... So I'm trying to be very careful with my language. God, in fact, God is uh, one being, three persons. But another term is we talk about is his nature. God, in fact, the, the three persons of the Trinity have a divine nature. Agree? 
So that is God's nature. He's divine. We have a human nature. So God is one being, three persons with a divine nature. You and I are one being, one person with a human nature. Are we following? So the question is, what actually happens in the incarnation? It's not that God changes his nature or that or, or changes the fact that he is one being, or, or it's not that God changes the fact that he is three persons, one being, a triune God. What happens, what he does, is that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, adds a second nature, adds a human nature. And so he, the Son, now holds in himself both a divine nature and a human nature. And it's really important that we grasp this. And I, again, I really hope that I'm not uh, saying any heresy in the way I've unpacked that. But it's important. He's added to himself, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, has added to himself a second nature, the human nature. This together with the reminder of Philippians 2 that Jesus did not use his divine nature to sort of cheat on the experience of having a human nature, but he humbled himself becoming a servant. Doesn't mean he changed his nature, but he added it and lived out of that nature, the human nature. This tells us something, all of that tells us something very, very, very important about God. That God knows and has fully experienced everything that we experience. He knows what it's like to be you and I. He never has to guess what it's like to, to be in your shoes with your struggles, your pains, the storms that you face. And we'll come back to why that is because, of course, Jesus hasn't been Ethan. Jesus hasn't been Peter. But um, he, he knows everything that we've faced and more. He's come down to our level. Now, I want to show you some photos, uh, just as a bit of an aside. I want to show you some photos from around my house. Um, sorry, Karen, for if no Karen's downstairs. Um, I've tried to be very careful not to capture the mess of the house to embarrass her or anyone else. So these are just some random photos of our living area, right? So the first one here is um, just – oh, and by the way, these are all taken from about my eye level. So the camera was about – so this is essentially what I see when I'm walking around our living area. So that one's just the corner of the kitchen. There's the fridge. There's a cupboard uh, bottle on the floor. Um, there's a mat, and uh, this is Abigail, one of Abigail's baby dolls. So if you don't know Abigail, she's one, just over one at the moment, and that's one of her baby dolls. And a few months ago, she went through a phase where she would say, baby, like that. So um, – uh, this is all for context. Uh, next slide, a couple more photos. Oh, no, no, last, next, one before, go back, go back. <laughs> right, there, I know it's slow. Um, okay. All right, there we go, there we go. So this is, uh, and um, if I'm not sure if sound was coming through there. Do we have an issue with the sound? So just make sure that that's, that's going to come through on the, next, on the next video. This is Vern. He's the robot vacuum. Um, don't ask me why he's called Vern, um, but apparently that's that's his name when Karen bought him secondhand. So this is the, the back door. There's the shoe rack over there. Um, that's uh, a couple of chairs at the dining table, a couple of water bottles. So again, all taken from my height. So this is just around our, around our area, and this area is mostly where Abigail, who of course you're going to see in a minute, 
It's mostly where she hangs out when she's not, a, not asleep, sometimes in the toy room, but mostly around here while Kerry and I are doing things. And uh, more often than not, Abigail is sort of monkey crawling around this area. What I mean by that is she's often holding something in one hand and then like kind of using the other hand and her legs to scoot around. That's just... No, I'm not going to show you. You'll see in a minute. Um, now, I took these photos, again, from head height, uh, about 1.8 metres, you know, that's where I held the phone. So this is my perspective of this area. When you think about it, like with the activity we did downstairs, from Abigail's view and perspective of this area, it's very different, right? So her eye level is probably, what, 20, 30 centimetres off the ground. That's a very different perspective to being up here um, at 1.8 metres. It's the same space, right? It's the same objects all around this area, but experienced in a very, very different way because she's down here and I'm, I'm up here. Now, I can try and imagine, right? I can try and imagine what it's like to be monkey crawling <laughs> right down there on the ground, but in reality, I really struggle to understand that. I can't kind of put my, put my mind there and go, well, what, what is that like? Especially when there's two crazy boys running around, age three and six, um, running all around her, who probably feel like giants to her, whereas to me, those boys are small children as well. Thanks to modern technology, we're going to see um, uh, what happened when one day Abigail grabbed a phone which happened to be recording a video while she was monkey crawling around. So did we get the sound? We're not sure. Okay, cool. There we go. See the robot vacuum in a sec. There it is. Which she just turned on. <laughs> and then push the button. I'm not sure why Micah thought someone was going to watch that and decided to make the announcement, but anyway. So there you go. That is life from, uh, sort of, from Abigail's perspective, or at least from her hand's perspective. I guess watching that video uh, gave me a little bit uh, better understanding of what it's like to be down at that level. The robot vacuum is her size, basically. It's not that much smaller than her. The table that she was crawling underneath is huge. The, the boys are like giants around her. Um, everything's happening in it from, a, from a very different perspective. And I think that in a small way, this begins to illustrate what God has done by becoming a human being. He's now experienced things at our level. But of course, in a much more real way than just through a phone camera recording. God has stepped into a human body 
and everything about the human experience uh, is different, very different to everything, uh, the divine experience and perspective. God's perspective from as God of the whole universe is different to the perspective we have as an ordinary created human being. But now he's come into this experience and he understands it. Not only that, but he's faced more and suffered more and endured more than we ever will. And I'll get to why that is. The writer of uh, Hebrews puts it this way. We read this before. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And in those days, while the king represented God to the people, that was the responsibility of the king, in the Old Testament days, the priest represented the people to God. So, so in other words, the priest came to God with a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Uh, he did, the priest did what was necessary to bridge that divide created by sin between God and humans. But it was a system that was only ever meant to point towards the true high priest that would be able to bridge this divide once and for all. That's what Hebrews is all about, this high priest, Jesus. And this high priest is able to empathize. Some, some translations say uh, is able to sympathize, but that doesn't capture the meaning of the word. He, he knows our experiences because he's fully experienced them at our level. He can truly empathize. He understands. Yet in all these struggles... And all these temptations and weaknesses that Jesus faced, just like us, he did not sin. Now, it's easy to maybe think, well, doesn't that mean Jesus' experience of human life in some ways was easier because he didn't feel the effects of sin, of his own sin? Well, it's, I think it's quite the opposite. Anyone who's tried to live for any period of time a holy life and just not give in to temptation, live a sinless, selfless life... The more you do that, the more difficult it is to do so, right? It, it, the, more, the more difficult it is to live in that way because the whole cosmos is broken and constantly pulling us towards selfish, self-protective, sinful living. And so Jesus experienced, I believe, Jesus experienced infinitely more hardship and pain than any of us. In part because he did not sin, and in part because it was his calling to live, and he and he responded not by sinning, but by staying the path, by staying that in that holy life. So now we have a God who has well and truly experienced everything that we have gone through, and going through, and will go through, and I would say even more. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, he can empathize because he knows. But he also doesn't see our failures, see your failures, and respond with judgment or disappointment. The next chapter says this, that he is able to, to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. To deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. Jesus is entirely willing and able to be with you in all your challenges, in all your failures, and gently bring you back to God. This is wonderful news. He understands, 
right? You are not alone in anything. Now, as I sort of wrap this up, please hear me. This does not diminish the gravity of your sin, the gravity of my sin, the extent of your depravity, the extent of my depravity. We are completely and utterly unworthy to come before a holy God. But Jesus has come down to our level, yet is worthy to be our high priest because he remains holy and and he restores that relationship with our Father that we broke. I think the two great temptations we face in how we think about God and who he is, the two great temptations are to elevate our human status, claiming, well, you know what, I mean, everyone, no one's perfect, but we're not so bad, right? We're not so bad, really. Yeah, we slip up, but God forgives us. We're, we're not that bad. That's one temptation, elevate our human status. The other is to reduce Jesus' divine status, claiming that no man could really go through life without sin. That's impossible. He was good, sure. In fact, maybe he's the, the best man that ever lived, but he must have made some mistakes. To, to diminish Jesus' divine status. Both of those beliefs are com- to elevate ourselves, to, to bring Jesus down, are completely inconsistent with Christianity and lead people away from the true God, not towards him. Our God is, this is what we have to hold together, our God is more holy and righteous and good and pure than we could possibly imagine. And we are more depraved and sinful and rotten and messed up than we could possibly comprehend. And Jesus comes as the holy God to our level, but without embracing the sin. And therefore cleans us up, brings us holy and righteous back into the embrace of the triune God, the Trinity. And it's it's so amazing. Yes, it's, it's so amazing to know that Jesus knows all our pains and all our struggles and all our storms and all our hardships. He's, he's with us in those. He gets it. He comforts us. He won't leave us alone in that. All of that's true. And if you're in the middle of a storm right now of any kind, any kind of pain, he's there and he understands. This is amazing news. But may we also recognize that all of the rubbish of life, All the stuff we go through is the result of sin. It might be your sin. It might be someone else's. It might be Adam's sin. Jesus is not content to leave us in this place. He's not content to leave us in sin and not content to leave us in a world marred by it. He's cleaning it all up. He's renewing all things. He doesn't want to leave you and I in our self-pity. He doesn't want to leave us in pride. He wants us to come to him in repentance, recognition of how messed up we really are and recognition of how holy he really is. When we turn to him with a, a recognition of our unworthiness, friends, this is the amazing news of the gospel. When we turn to him with a recognition of our unworthiness. He will walk you straight up to the throne of grace where the holy God sits, covered with his robe of righteousness, making you pure and clean before your heavenly Father. 
And this is who our God is. Amen. Father, we just thank you so much for what it really means that you have come to this earth in the person of Jesus, not just a representative of God, but God himself, yourself, God, in a human being. Lord, thank you that you have done this because you love us. Thank you that you have done this because you loved us so much that you were not content to leave us with what we deserve, but to pour upon us grace upon grace. Thank you for what you have done, the sacrifice that you have made to come down to our level and to lift us up into the arms of our Heavenly Father, Jesus. Lord, we pray that over this season we would be able to hold together the the reality of the person of Jesus, the, the man who walked this earth, and God the Son, the Holy God, the Eternal God, somehow dwelling in that man, Jesus. We thank you for what you have done in the Incarnation, God. We praise you and we respond now in worship to you because you are worthy of it. All God's people said.